Hi there. Um, hello, Joseph. How are you? Good, Oliver. How are you today? I'm I'm pumped. I'm super excited to have Clint on today. I just uh, had an amazing conversation with um, Khalil Mohammed, who is a Harvard professor, and it was uh, just a beautiful conversation that we had. And I'm 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 really excited to talk to Clinton and um, hear his perspectives. This has been a an interesting week for me. From an educational standpoint, it's been I've been immersing myself and I'm really digging it. Really, really digging it. That's great. And and yeah. I I feel like uh this will be important for you and me to be able to put out there for you and me to meet him and learn. The more I read about him, the more I watch his two TED talks. I first of all, there there is a brilliance with his writing mm-hmm. that is just so Beautiful powerful. Poet. Yeah. But, but it's not just, and then, and then you go from the writing to the delivery of it and the way that he almost performs it. And it's mm-hmm. just an onslaught of all these ideas. And it yeah. makes, you're thinking about one and then two and three and four more have just hit you. And it's, it's, uh, it's powerful. Is Clint there? How's it going? There you are. Thank you for coming on Clint. Um, we started this podcast, you know, a few months ago, daddy issues, just wanting to explore what it was like to, you know, be a son and be a father and sort of everything else in between. Mm-hmm. I was sort of lucky enough to hear your your TED talk, which was just um, really amazing, beautiful words, beautiful poetry, and uh, just so much conviction. And, and I had to hit you up and I'm, I'm grateful that you were, you gave us your your time, man. So I'm excited, excited to talk with you. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. And, and it's not just the, it's not just your most recent Ted talk, uh, but the danger of silence, which I think the two go hand in hand. And, and it's something that Oliver and I, when everything exploded here over the past couple of weeks, we said to each other off air, what can we do? Like what, what, what can, what can Oliver Hudson and Joe Buck, what can we do? We, we, we I'm willing to do anything. I want to make this better. I want to, I want to educate myself. Oliver's been uh, educating himself, reading, talking, but, but it's the danger of silence that I, I think is the, is the one that really grabs me because we have a platform and to not use a platform is a crime to, to not make the world better around you. So I, I think having you on is, is uh, a way for he and I to uh, engage in this conversation, and at least for me, I don't want to speak for Oliver, better understand exactly what I can do so that, that I can be a help and not, and not somebody who just sits there and does nothing, uh, except I, I try to lead as exemplary a life as I can. But why don't you, know, you talk about sense? what the danger of silence, why don't you talk about that just for a sec, you know, what that what Danger of Silence TED Talk was all about. Yeah, so that was a TED Talk that came out in 2014. Uh, it's based on um, a poem that I wrote uh, about a year before that. And just, you know, I was a high school English teacher um, in Maryland for several years before I went to graduate school. And I taught 10th and 12th grade English. Uh, and there was a big initiative that we had um, because, you know, this was the era of cyberbullying becoming a more pronounced feature of like 
American high school life. Uh, and there was a big a sort of initiative that we had around uh, anti-bullying, right? The teachers, we all came in and the, the administrators were saying, you know, we got to make sure that we are addressing bullying, both cyberbullying, in, in, interpersonal bullying, emotional bullying, physical bullying, all of these things, um, because they were becoming a real uh, issue in, in our school as they, as they did um, and have been uh, in many schools, especially as of late with all the different ways that that can happen. Uh, and, and so we had this big anti-bullying initiative happening at our school. And I was, you know, we were tasked with saying, like, if you see something, say something, don't allow someone to be emotionally abused or physically abused or verbally abused. And I think I was telling my students this, you know, I was a young 22-year-old teacher um, teaching a bunch of 15-year-olds. And, and I was telling my students this, and I realized that I was asking my students to do something that I wasn't necessarily doing myself. And that there were so many moments in my own life where I was... I, where I didn't say something when I saw an injustice taking place, um, whether in a small, micro, sort of granular, interpersonal way, or in a macro, larger, global context. Um, and just it, a lot of my writing is, is really and truly for me as a way of holding myself accountable to the standards of uh, humanity and personhood that I want to live up to, you know? And so this poem uh, was written sort of as a way to say, like, this is, these are the implications. This is what happens if you fail to say anything when uh, people beyond your, uh, your group or your family or your community or those who align with different facets of your identity, when you, when you only care about or speak up for things that have to do with those, um, you are doing a disservice to the sort of larger human project, I think. And and, you know, so for me, I had to think actively about, like, what does it mean, uh, you, you know, thinking about how I, Clint Smith, exist, uh, you know, in amid a combination of factors, you know, in my or a combination of identities. And so, you know, I'm a black, straight, cisgender male. And so, like, in one context, I'm a black man and I'm part of a group or I'm a black person and I'm a part of a group who has been historically marginalized and oppressed. And on another hand, I'm a, a straight man who is a part of a group that has historically done a lot of the oppressing, right? And so thinking about the ways that I both uh, benefit from sexism and patriarchy and homophobia, while at the same time uh, recognizing the way that like the history of oppression against Black people has shaped my family, my community, my lineage, and recognizing that both of those things are a part of me, right? And recognizing that we all have this sort of amalgamation of of factors that shape who we are and how we navigate through the world. And so all that's to say is, you know, the, when I think about the danger of silence, I think about like, what does it mean if I, Clint Smith, am not like actively speaking up for trans people? What does it mean if I, Clint Smith, am not actively speaking up for uh, women? What does it mean if I, Clint Smith, am not actively speaking up for uh, people who exist beyond the borders of the United States? You know, I think a lot about what mourning looks like. Um, and I've written about this a bit, just like, why is it that we mourn some lives in certain ways when the only difference seems to be the sort of arbitrary border that we have created between like what one country is and another is. And so, so, you know, the danger of silence was born out of this impulse to push back against and sort of unlearn so much of what I had been consciously and unconsciously and sort of explicitly and implicitly taught about, um, what I should care about and how I should move through the world.
Mm. Where do you, where I, I know you look up to your father and you call your father your first teacher. I'm wondering where you get this desire to be so introspective. It's so, I mean, I could listen to you talk forever and, and it makes me think about my own failings, uh, looking at, at life and where I sit the way you are. But where, where do you think that comes from, the desire? You know, I think my parents did a great job of instilling within me uh, a sense of how, um, how fortunate I was uh, and, and, and just really a sense of I was, I was born and raised with an acute awareness that but for the arbitrary nature of birth and circumstance, I very easily could have been born into a different set of circumstances and in, and that my life could have been put on a very different trajectory. And I see the manifestations of that because I work in prisons and jails and have for the last several years. And so, you know, I worked in Massachusetts Department of Corrections and I currently teach creative writing in D.C. jail. And every day, de- you know, I, I haven't been going in lately because of the pandemic, obviously. But, um, but you know, when I go there, I am reminded that uh, it, the reason that some of the men that I work with are on one side of those bars and the reason that I am on this side of the bar and get to leave after I come in is not because of something I've done to deserve that. It is not because of something inherent within me that makes me worthy of having gotten a PhD or worthy of having been a teacher or worthy of having had a TED Talk. It is because I was born into a set of circumstances that I had nothing to do with that put my life on a fundamentally different trajectory than the life someone else did, uh, the life that someone else might have been put on, right? So I work with a lot of men who were born into abject poverty, who were born into communities that are saturated with violence and poverty as a result of decades and decades and generations of uh, state-sanctioned segregation in this country. And and I am, you know, I was born to two parents who both have advanced degrees and you know, in a middle-class neighborhood with, you know, grandparents who were able to help and pick me up from school, all sorts of things that that shouldn't be necessary to like, you know, achieve any level of upward mobility in this country. Um, but, but that are, that happened because of things that exist beyond me. And so that's all to say, I think, you know, people can get caught up in like this conversation around, uh, whether people deserve things or not and say like, Oh, well, you know, when we're having a conversation around privilege, for example, and people will say, Oh, well, um, you know, you calling me, people receive the idea of privilege as if someone is suggesting that they don't uh, deserve or have not worked hard for the things that they've gotten. And it's, it's not to say that people don't work hard for the things that they get. It is simply that we must all recognize that what we, where we end up in life has to do with a million factors beyond us, right? Positive and negative. Um, and so, you know, in a, in a sort of macro sense, if we're thinking about this moment in time, right, where we are having a reckoning with race and racism in a way that we uh, have not certainly in my lifetime and, and increasingly, it seems like in, in many people's lifetimes, um, it is that, you know, if you, I live in Maryland. And so if you have one, you know, person who was born into an affluent white community in Maryland and another person who was born into a community that is saturated with violence and poverty that exists because the United States government and the uh, FDA or the FHA, rather, the Federal Housing Administration, made it so that black people could not buy homes outside of certain neighborhoods. We know the history of redlining. We know the history of segregation. 
And then we know that any social scientist will tell you that if you force people in poverty to uh, live in communities without having access to medical care or resources or good schools or any meaningful opportunity for upward mobility, you are going to create uh, a set of circumstances in that community that is going to be harmful to, to any group of people, regardless of what race they are. And so that's what was, this country did in cities across the country for, for decades. Uh, and so you have young people who are growing up in these environments. Uh, and then you have another young person who's growing up in a fundamentally different environment. And these two people can work equally as hard, but their hard work might manifest itself in fundamentally different ways because they're starting in fundamentally different places, right? And so that's why when people are like, oh, well, you're saying like I have right pri white privilege or, or wealth privilege or, you know, whatever the case may be, you're saying that I didn't work hard for what you got. It's not that you didn't work hard. It's that you worked hard and the position you were born into and the position of your life and those circumstances made it so that your hard work could manifest itself in a certain way. Whereas that same level of hard work, if not more hard work in another set of circumstances, um, isn't enough necessarily to put someone on, on the same trajectory that you were on. Yeah, no, I know. <clears throat> I mean, I think that's the nuance of, of that, that people need to start to understand a little bit better. You know, I think we're living in a bit of a reactionary time right now when they hear the word privilege, white privilege. It feels like an attack sort of on someone's work ethic in a mm -hmm. way. Um, but sometimes I feel like people just need to slow down a little bit and go a little bit deeper and think about some of the things that you were talking about you know, right now. And, 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 and to sort of to touch upon, you know, sort of si silence and what silence is, you know, um, I think we're in a time now where we have to be, get, get a little bit louder, right. Um, as a white person, you know, you're wanting to say the right thing or you're wanting not to say the wrong thing. Okay. That's, that's what I was feeling. I've, I've been, very introspective over the last couple of weeks and doing a lot of reading and just going inside a little bit and recognizing my own bias, who I was, you know, who I am, who I want to be, and just sort of reevaluating myself on a, on a larger scale. Um, and the problem with silence is, is that then, well, the problem, I, the pro that I will go back, the problem, uh, you know, with, with not wanting to say the wrong thing is that that breeds sort of a complacency, mm -hmm. which ble breeds silence and inaction. Mm -hmm. So I've sort of come to terms with, you know what, it's better to express myself with right, the right intentions and maybe and risk saying the wrong thing. And then learning from potentially saying the wrong thing, then saying nothing, because that doesn't 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 do anybody any good, you know. Because there is this sort of fear of being canceled. There's we're living in this cancels cancellation society, right? Mm. Um, so that's been my a bit of my journey in this last week is just saying the things that I feel, and if if I if I don't get it perfectly right, that's okay, you know. Mm. Yeah, I, I feel the same way, and I, I don't know, Clint, how that makes you feel. Um, but I think that's as honest as Oliver can be, and I feel the same way. It's like you know, if if I'm going to be on national TV every week, you know, and I've covered Colin Kaepernick, and I think we all have a different understanding of what was going on back then with Colin Kaepernick and what he was really 
doing uh, now probably more than ever. How we, uh, how we have open, honest conversations without just kind of turning off. And just it seems like everybody is so compartmentalized and cut off from the other side. I, that, that's as a 51-year-old guy, I'm a lot older than you. I feel like there was a time, and, and maybe I'm wrong, where, where people could actually listen and learn from somebody that comes from a place or has uh, that they don't come from or has different ideals or different uh you know different uh, philosophies than than they do and I, I don't know that we're in a position where anybody wants to hear from the other side and and that's that's frightening to me because I feel like every it's just ratcheting up and it's uh, it's it's scary because I, I I just see what's going on and and I I man I I feel like such a failure for not doing more but I don't know exactly what to do and I don't know exactly who to reach out to uh, and and I you know I don't know if you can shed any light on that for me yeah I mean I hear it I think the I think the other side of it is that we are living in a moment in which there is a different level of accountability than maybe there has ever been, right? And I think the way that history works is that the pendulum kind of swings from one side to the other before, before finding some sort of equilibrium, right? So for a lot of people, when you move from people being able to say whatever they wanted to say or industries being able to operate uh, with a level of um, uh with a with a level of uh, an ignorance of indiscretion, indiscretion, just whatever right. they want. Yeah, and, and I think we've seen you know one one example of that is is Me Too, right? Like so, I think Me Too is an example of a moment that uh, in which this thing was happening, you know, assault, harassment, predominantly toward women, but others as well, uh, for generations, and like everyone knew it, but no one said anything. Uh, and people's conceptions of what was appropriate and not appropriate were different than they are now. And that's not obviously to excuse, but, but I think there is a, but there has been a shift that I think for men, from some men might feel like, wow, the rules have changed relative to what they were, you know, several years ago. And that feels unfair or that feels like, I don't know what to do when I'm in a room with women, or I don't know what to say. That's not going to, I think maybe, I, yeah, I, th- I I can understand that sentiment. I also think what is true is that for decades, men have been far too, been allowed to operate in far too cavalier a way, um, in ways that were like hugely harmful to women. And so, so I would much prefer to be in a situation in which, you know, men are having to think really proactively about what they're saying and what they're doing, how they're moving their body, what their voice is doing, what they might be implying, what they might. It, I think for me, anything that demands a different level of proactive reflection, uh, anything that demands somebody uh, be more cognizant of like how they move through the world and how their position and their identity uh, and their, you know, in terms of positions of power, um, how, what that is in relation to someone else, I think that is a good thing, right? But like, as we understand these things kind of swing from one end to the other before mm-hmm. finding somewhere in the middle. And in, in some ways, you know, racism 
Me, you know, sexual assault and racism fundamentally different entities. But but if we're thinking about Black Lives Matter and Me Too as some of the most you know um, powerful movements of of this generation uh, or poignant movements of this generation, then I think too that you know there's this thing that has been happening in Black communities for generations, right? Like Black people have been beaten and assaulted and killed by police at disproportionately high rates for as long as Black people have been. In this country, we live in a moment right now in which there are cameras that are capturing something that has been happening in Black communities for a long time, uh, and a lot of people are having to reckon with the way that they think about certain institutions and how those institutions might serve them in a fundamentally different way than they serve someone else. Right. So, like, if you're if the way you think about police is largely shaped by, you know seeing the police at the county fair or, you know, and you go and uh, get in the cop car and you get to put on the cop hat next to the fireman car and the fireman hat and like you wave to the person and, and you, you know, if you live in the suburbs of, of white America, that is largely the, your relationship to police, right? Other than what you see on the media and, and um, in film and in, and in television. But like if you are growing up in a scenario in which every day of your life, the police have been a force of terror. Right. If you if you are growing up in a community where the police get out of their car and throw you against the wall and just like week after week after week after week. And you grow up in that environment and everyone, you know, grows up in an environment in which that was happening and happening to people who look like you. The way you think about what the police will do or who they are and what they represent to you is going to be fundamentally different than what they represent to someone else. And so then when you're 15 years old and the police get out of their car to come throw you up against the wall another time and you start running and then the police chase you and then something happens. And then, you know, the police shoots, uh, shoots a person because you turn around and they think you're holding a gun, but you're holding your, and then it turns into this thing. Well, why is he running? Like, why did he start running? If you just don't run or you don't resist arrest, then nothing's going to happen. But, but you have to, people have to understand the accumulation of experiences that shape how a person is, is experiencing a representative of an institution that is supposed to protect you, but for your entire life has done the opposite. Yeah, that that's that's always been, that was my answer, and 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 my wife and I talked about it when when I had to cover Colin Kaepernick kneeling and other players kneeling during the national anthem. Uh, we talked about it, and I I have not lived the life of Colin Kaepernick. I have not lived the life of Malcolm Jenkins. I don't know what that feeling is like to have fear when you see a police officer instead of me seeing a police officer as somebody there to help me. Right. And, and so there, it's just a, it's an entirely different way of having grown up and it's an entire, entirely different way of like it, almost like a guttural reaction when you see a uniform or some person to have that instinct has got to be horrifying because the, not only do you get that reaction? But that person is armed and and has the law behind them, or has so that is. I I just I'm I'm anxious to see how we all find our way out of the woods on this. How that gets better? I, I it's it's going to be a long. Process, but that's the thing. Right? That's the thing. It's baked in. It's baked in because this isn't just about sort of one generation. You're talking about centuries, basically. I mean, this is something. This is like you know. 
I think systemic is a word that is being a become a buzzword now, but I, I think people have to look into the definition of it and really understand what that means. You know, there are pat patterns have been adopted and now exist that somehow need to get broken. But, you know, it's like what you were saying, Clint, you know, this 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 spans many, many generations, right? So how do you how do you how 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 is something like this remedied? It's gonna take a minute, but I think so. So I'll say two things because I, I realize I gave a roundabout answer to the initial question. So what I would say is that all of us have to think about expanding our capacity for empathy, mm-hmm. and say, the same way that like I I do not know what it is like to be a trans person, right? Like I, that is not my experience. That is not the body and the world that I live in or walk through. But, but that inability for me to consider what it might mean, like to fear, you know, the the American Medical Association said there's an epidemic of violence against transgendered people right now, right? And, you know, we don't, we don't hear a lot about it in part because of the sort of, um, you know, the way that a lot of the, the stereotypes and a lot of the prejudices uh, against trans people that still exist. Um, but like, for me, it is really important that I am mindful of my blind spots and like, why is it that these are things that I'm not thinking of actively? Why is it, what does it mean for me to consider the, the additional fear that like, if you are a black trans woman walking down the street, that like you fear that like someone will, will harm you or kill you in a way that is actually, that is actually reflected in the research and the data. And so I, I use that as an example because, because I think it is, I have to it's not it's not a switch right i think some people can think about all of this stuff as like oh i just need to like switch my mindset or i'm going to cross this threshold or you know the when people are using the nomenclature of woke you know it's almost a caricature of itself now but, but like if you say like oh like the woke person or i want to be woke or what you know i almost hate even saying it <laughs> but, uh, but, but the, the issue even before it was like a caricature of itself mm-hmm. the issue with woke suggested that there was like some threshold that you crossed right where it was like okay this is not woke and this is woke. And now I've crossed the threshold into woke and I'm good rather than this. What it is, is an actual sort of project. If you're going to use that verbiage of like waking up, right? Mm-hmm. Like it is, it is an ongoing active phenomenon and it's never done, right? Like being an anti-racist person is work that you will do for the rest of your life that you will do that. I will do being like anti-sexist, anti-racist, anti-homophobic. It is because we have grown up and lived in a world in which those realities are so deeply ingrained into every facet of our lived experiences and in the world and society we, we've grown up in, the unlearning of that is is a daily proactive process. Um, that, would you would you say, Clint, that empathy? Would you say that education breeds empathy? You know, meaning if I'm to immerse myself in sort of the history of or really reading or discovering what it might feel like to be trans right yeah then i will then that breeds empathy in me because now you're able to sort of put yourself in someone's shoes i think it can't yeah i mean i think there's a lot of different ways for empathy to to manifest itself you know for me a big way is proximity Right. So the way I thought about the criminal legal system was fundamentally different 
when I started, became fundamentally different after I started working in prisons, right? Yeah. How, how did that shift for you? That's, that's interesting, actually. Yeah. I mean, I always, you know, I think I, I was reading about prisons and I read the new Jim Crow and I had this sort of abstract uh, and a sort of intellectual understanding of what the carceral state was doing and what it was. But it's just, it's a fundamentally different thing when you, when you are one physically present inside of the cage that we keep human beings inside of, right? Like we, we tell hundreds of thousands of millions, we tell millions, excuse me, we tell millions of people that they are, they are trapped in a cage and that we won't let them out. We tell hundreds of thousands of them that they will be locked in that cage for the rest of their, of their lives and won't be able to get out. Um, and so I think it's one thing to like be, to walk in and out of that space. And I think it's another to develop relationships with incarcerated people and to see them as like mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and people who are funny and people who are smart and people who made big mistakes, some of them, and people who, you know, I, I think, you know, you develop a relationship with someone. And it is not to say that if you develop a relationship with someone who is living in a different set of circumstances or has a different identity, that that in and of itself is enough to make you more empathetic. But I think it certainly has the potential to serve as a catalyst for empathy. Um, and for me, that's been a really important, important part of it. And, you know, in, in you mentioned history. I, I always give this timeline because I think it's really helpful in sort of grounding the conversation about race in this country and just like having a sense of perspective about where we are. So the first enslaved Africans were brought to the British colonies in 1619. The Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863. The Civil War ended in 1865. The Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act were 1964 and 1965, and the Federal Housing Act was signed in 1968. So it's only been about 50 years in which Black people in this country have even had a semblance of legal and legislative freedom. For 350 years prior to that, it was fundamentally legal to discriminate against, dehumanize, delegitimize, and disenfranchise Black people. Not in an interpersonal, somebody being mean and using the N-word, but like you are a state-sanctioned, second-class citizen if you are considered a citizen at all. So if you were to kick somebody for 350 years and then ostensibly stop kicking them for a seventh of the amount of time that you spent kicking them, you'll be both morally and intellectually disingenuous to then look at that group of people and be like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you have the same academic outcomes? Why don't you have the same economic outcomes? Why is there so much violence and poverty in your community? What well, we know the answers to these questions, right? And they're like, it doesn't even have to stop at slavery. You can talk about the New Deal and how the New Deal was the single greatest catalyst of intergenerational wealth over the course of the 20th century and was designed specifically to prevent Black people from having access, specifically Black people in the South, from having access to its greatest benefits. So Black people didn't have access to Social Security, minimum wage protection, housing mortgages, health care. Uh, union membership. And so you give the single greatest catalyst of intergenerational wealth over the course of a century to one group of people. And then you very purposefully don't give it to another group of people. And then generations later, people want to look surprised when there are disparate outcomes along the lines that those resources were allotted. And like I think that these are the stories that have to be told and the mm -hmm. history that people have to be reminded of. Because if, if you're not actively told this history, if you're not actively reminded of this history, you can walk around, you look at one part of LA and another part of LA or one part of Minneapolis and another part of Minneapolis or one part of DC and another part of DC. You look in this group of people is living one way and another group is living another way. And you can fall into the trap of thinking that the people living in those impoverished conditions are there because it's their fault rather than things that have been done to these communities generation after generation after generation. Um, 
And I just think people forget or weren't taught or, or both. Um, I think weren't taught. Weren't I, taught. I think I- yep. ignorance, ignorance is, it's no excuse, but ignorance is a huge factor in this equation here. I don't think people get all that. I, I don't think, you know, the way you, and that's the brilliance of your writing. It's the brilliance of your performance. We were talking about that. Oliver and I were before you got on watching your Ted talk. And there's a reason why, you know, the most recent one, you're over 3 million views. The other one's 5 million plus views because there's an educational element. There's a beautiful writing element. There's a performance element. Like you're saying things and you're building. And I'm still thinking about what you said two examples prior where you, where you, you know, in the danger of silence when you're talking about some potential donor saying, talking about unintelligent kids that you're that you're teaching and how how just horrible that comment is but it's just it's like gut-wrenching and and then you're hitting with three more examples there's an educational element to this that i think has been missed and and has not been taught properly especially to people like Oliver and me especially to white communities who don't understand the context you're putting it in, 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 in just a very simply laid out uh, chronology of events that, that make you understand what the hell's going on right now. And I think that that's one of the issues um, when, you know, sometimes people think that like race and racism and those conversations are only should be taking place um, with among black people um, or that black people should be the only ones having them. Uh, or that Black history is a thing for Black people predominantly. And and to be clear, like, you know, for me, much of this information I also didn't learn in school, right? Like, I, I shouldn't have to go get a doctorate to, like, learn so much of the things that are foundational to what it is to be uh, an American. Um, but, but for yeah, me, but, but that's important. Not well, a Black American, an American. An American. Right. Yeah, I mean, no. I think that that's a distinction you could have just said right there to, you know, to, to talk about history as a black. No, to talk about history as an American. This is part of all of our story. And I and, think and, that, and it's yeah. and nobody the, looks at it that way. And I think the problem is when you look at it, when you think about it and, and make that sort of false demarcation between like, oh, this is black American history and this is American history. It is that then white people fall into the trap of kind of going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, thinking that white people writ large are in the position they are because they work harder or because their grandparents worked harder or because their grandparents came to Ellis Island the legal way, which, you know, if, if you want to study like history of immigration for the, for most of American history, if you showed up at Ellis Island, you just got in, right? Like people weren't denied. So when people are like, oh, well, you know, my grandparents came through Ellis Island. They came legally. It's like, well, there was no such thing as legal or illegal immigration at that time, right? People just showed up to Ellis Island and, and like 1% of people were sent back, right? So this idea that you're going to look at somebody coming through the southern border from Central America and say they should do it like my grandparents did, they're actually doing exactly what your grandparents did. Uh, but we just have a fundamentally different set of rules right now. And I think part of what history can do is is teach us the things that we thought we knew about ourselves, help us unlearn some of what we thought we knew about ourselves and disabuse us of the notion that the country looks the way that it does because uh, by accident or because of, of, of cultural phenomena or, or genetic or biological dispositions of different groups, when instead it, it, the country looks the way that it does 
because of policy decisions that were made and grounded in in racism, right? For for much for the vast majority of this country's existence. So what was it like growing up for you in, in New Orleans? How was that experience? I had a great childhood. You, you know, did. I had uh, my, my parents, uh, you know, I always tell them um, I'm so grateful for them because they made they made me feel safe. Mm. You know, I felt very safe in my home. My home was a place of, of like laughter and joy and celebration um, in ways that I, I hope to, to model and replicate for my own kids. You know, I just always... I know, and I know it is, you know, across, across racial lines, home is not always a place where people feel comfortable and feel safe for a variety of reasons. But I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to my parents that my home always felt that way. But, you know, my childhood was a lot of kind of moving between different, different groups and different spaces. You know, I went to public school my whole life in New Orleans, but I played soccer my whole life with the kids from the suburbs. Um, and so I was kind of always moving between these different socioeconomic spaces, these different racial spaces. And I think a lot of what probably animates the work that I do now is born out of moments of frustration or confusion or disillusionment that I experienced as a child. So for example, you know, I grew up in New Orleans and I think I was like 13 years old and somebody had gotten a black person was shot by police. Um, and people were marching and, and similar to what we see now, not at the same scale, but this was also before people had camera footage of, of these events. And so, you know, the police said that they he pulled a gun on them and the community were like, he was unarmed. And, and this is a moment in history. You know, this was, if I'm 13, this is what, like 2000, um, 2001. And so they, uh, Everybody at that point, people are just taking the police's word for it, right? Oh, the police said he had a gun, so he had, you know. And then, um, even though very clearly now we see that police lie often about these sorts of things, um, and I remember there was one kid who was like, because um, there were these protests and these marches, and one kid on my soccer team, white kid, uh, was like, I don't know why black people always get upset when a police kills someone, and like never get upset about black on black crime. Now, I remember being 13 years old and being so angry, but also so confused um, because I knew what this person was saying was wrong, but I didn't know how to say it was wrong. Like, I didn't have the language. I didn't have the history. I didn't have the sociology. I didn't have the toolkit with which to push back against what was a very common and still is a very common pathology and stereotype that is not actually grounded in in an understanding of how these things work. So, right. So when I'm 13 years old, I don't have the FBI Bureau of Statistics at hand to say like, actually, you know, this year, 2000, 84% of white people were killed by other white people, but you never hear the narrative about why don't white crime, right? Because like there's a hyper, there is a narrative that is meant to make black people seem hyper-violent, especially against one another. Uh, And, and we also can't disentangle this from, as I mentioned, the history of housing segregation that makes it so that people live in communities alongside uh, those who are only those who look like them, right? So all the white people lived in one part of town, all the black people lived in one part of town, all the Irish immigrants in this part of town, the Mexican immigrants in this part of town. And what we know about crime is that people commit crime against those who they live in proximity to, right? So it is not, it doesn't have anything to do with like black people 
just really love killing other black people. It, it is that pe- anyone who lives in proximity to other people, that is who crime violent sure. and nonviolent is committed against, right? Uh, or the fact that, like, one, the general assertion that Black people don't com- care about, like, violence that's happening in their community is bogus because Black people are having anti-violence marches all the time, doing church initiatives all the time, local YMC. I mean, all endless amounts of community initiatives meant to uh, stem and prevent violence happening in these communities. So, so all of this stuff. But, like, I was 13 and I didn't know what to say and I didn't know those things. And so what happens is that I feel confused and then I'm like, oh man, like, is he right? Like, no, he's not right. But like, I, but is he right? And then, and that's how internalized racism happens. It's that you're inundated with these narratives and you don't have the toolkit to, to know that what this person is saying. With, is- some, with something like that though, or you, could you go, did you have the relationship with your parents or your father or your mother to go and actually express these feelings to them? I, I did sometimes, not all the time, because I think. I think I just felt a lot of shame. Like I didn't even want to bring it up because I also didn't want, I was also like the only, I was either the only black kid or one of two black kids on my soccer team pretty much my whole life. And so they were all, I was already acutely aware of the, the, I don't want to call it the performance, but like the way that my parents, my, my parents knew unfairly knew that they represent, that these were, we were the only black people that many of these folks ever interacted with. Right. And so I didn't want to put my parents in a position to become the stereotypical angry black parents who are going to go to the white kids' parents and be like, your kid is a racist and create this sort of, you know, tension on my soccer team, which was, you know, this play, this otherwise, this thing that I love, like I love soccer more than anything in the world. And so a lot of times I wouldn't have those conversations because I just wanted, I didn't want to make it more of a thing. But the irony of it is that I didn't want to make it more of a thing because I thought it would feed the very, you know, racism that I was experiencing in a different, in a different way. No, that and, makes sense. Because if, if you're one of two kids on your soccer team, in some ways you feel like you're carrying the banner right. for, for your race and you don't, you know, you, you want to do it proudly and well. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that, that makes all the sense in the world. And it's, it's a, and it's a problem too, though, because no black child or person should ever have to feel like they are representative of millions of people. Right. right? And I think that's the position that black people are in, in like in corporate settings and work yeah. settings and school settings and boy scouts and the soccer team, wherever it is that they are made to feel as if they and there were so many moments where I was like, I am, I am representing black people in this space. And that just, it's just too much. That's too, too much. much. That's a heavy burden. That's a lot of weight on your shoulders. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. a, that's a great point, Clint. I mean, I've never even thought about that. It's so, it's, it's an interesting sort of psychology that I've never even. You're taking on so much more than just representing yourself or, right. or in some, you know, representing your parents, representing right. how you were taught or whatever. And I know all that stuff's intertwined, but that's a lot for, a, you know, that you were aware of that. Yeah. Obviously you're a hyper intelligent person. Uh, that's clear, but how did, that, how did that's your, a lot. How did your family, how did your parents deal with race as in when you were kids, you know, with your family? I mean, was it a topic of conversation, you know, okay. as young kids? Yeah. Yeah, no, we definitely talked about it. I mean, my my parents um, were very purposeful in ensuring that we never thought that, you know, we were, you know, because we we had my my mother was a, a physician and my dad was an attorney, right? And so 
we were in a different socioeconomic position than like a lot of the folks I went to school with, for example. Um, but my parents were always very, very clear in reminding my siblings and I, it's like, you are no, like, don't ever get it twisted. Like you are no, you're no better than this person. You don't deserve any of this, right? Pointing to our house and like all the stuff in it. They're like, you are no better or don't deserve any of this more than anyone. Um, and you have to recognize, and again, this is kind of coming back to what we were saying before that like, you know, the reason that my mother was even able to go to medical school can't be stripped away from the fact that like my grandfather, her father, for example, grew up in 1930 Jim Crow, Mississippi. No, there was no high school for black students in that town uh, where he grew up in. Um, and and like he grew up in a town where the Klan ran through the neighborhoods at night uh, trying to intimidate black people where, where people were lynched, you know, when he was a child. Um, and that like he had there's this one school principal when he was in middle school who had a friend who lived in a town, you know, an hour north. And he took a special liking to my grandfather. And he was like, I'm going to send you to this school and you can live with this person. And, and like, you know, something that this person didn't have to do. But for that single gesture, like the entire trajectory of my family's life is on a fundamentally different path, right? And the problem about racism is that it shouldn't have to take like one school principal taking this one precocious kid, you know, or this one smart kid from school, putting him in a, you know, sending him up to board with p- these people he doesn't know in a completely different town uh, when he's 13 or 14 years old so that his life can go on and, you know, be on a different trajectory. My grandfather went to Howard University and got a PhD and was a zoologist and then a, 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 a college administrator. And but But I think about that all the time because I think it is a reminder for me of how easily things could have ended up differently. Mm. Um, and I think those stories were told to me as a kid. So for me, my, my parents were like, not like you, you're lucky. Like you, you are brilliant and you are kind and you, and we are, we want to give you everything you, uh, that we can to make your life, uh, full of, of joy. Um, but like you are lucky in a way that far too few of us are. Um, and you should always be cognizant of that. And that should shape the decisions that you make and what you decide to do and how you navigate the world. Mm. Man. Man and, did, and, and did your, was this a generational thing? I mean, did your parents, did your grandparents have, you know, similar talks with your parents that your parents had with you about race or, or, and then, and, and then moving forward with your kids, you know, how, how do you, how are you going to approach it? You know, especially, you know, with, with what, uh, with what's happening today. I mean, do you have yeah. plans or are you going to just going to let that moment, you know, come and feel it and, and act yeah, on I mean, that feeling? I think racism is a thing where sometimes people feel like you can't have the conversation with your children until they like reach a certain age. But, but I think you, you scaffold the conversation and you make it appro- age appropriate, right? Like the example I give with the environment, we don't go to a, four-year-old and say, well, climate change is an existential threat and the polar ice caps are melting and all the polar bears are going to die and it's going to be underwater, right? Like that would be inappropriate. (laughs) And what you say is like, what, dad? (laughs) No, if you told my kid the polar bears were going to die. Right, exactly. That's all he's going to take from it. The the polar bears aren't going to be there anymore. Uh, What you do is you say it's important to recycle. 
it's important to turn the water off and while you're brushing your teeth, turn the lights off when you leave the room. Like you scaffold it and you make it appropriate to the age of the person you're talking to. And it's the same thing with race and racism, right? You don't go to somebody, a four-year-old, and say white supremacy is an ever-present fixture in the United States and has been since 1619 and it's embedded <laughs> in the social political fabric fabric of this country and black people are an undercast. And, you know, that that would be sad. They would be mm-hmm. sad. Um, mm-hmm. What you do is you say... You know, it is important to reject the idea of colorblindness. Like, you don't have to pretend I don't care if somebody's blue, green, yellow, orange. Like, you say this person is black and this person is brown and this person is from this country and this person is from that country. How amazing! How cool! Mm. Let's, let's like you don't. We don't have to do this sort of fake. Like, I don't care what somebody is. Everybody's the same to me. You say, you know, my kid is three years old and he's already looking at people and being like, they're black, they're brown, they're mm. white, they're you know, and so like you would you have conversations about what it is to celebrate and lift that up and how amazing it is that you know there's so many different types of people coming from so many different types of places with so many different experiences and then you know as they get older you talk about how those experiences make things unfair for certain groups of people and how we you have to be part of a world that is trying to make it so that you know these people who look like this or who sound like this or who come from this place aren't uh you know experiencing the the harm and you know uh, difficult circumstances that they do. So what about like, you know, I mean, did your parents and would you have sort of, I guess, you know, the talk, I guess, so to speak, you know, where, look, this is the reality of your skin color right now. You know, when you're driving down the street, when you get pulled over, I mean, is that, is that a real conversation to be had? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, it's a conversation I wish I didn't have to have, but it is absolutely a conversation that is, uh, necessary to have. And, you know, I think the balance for any black parent is trying to figure out how you at once convey to your son or daughter, the realities of the world without then making it seem as if they have done something to deserve it or without making it seem as if it is their fault. And I think that that's the balance is how do you communicate something that is meant to keep them safe without making it seem like the thing that might hurt them is something they have something they might deserve, Mm. you know? And, um, yeah. At the same time, is there any balance that you have to find between educating on history with your children and not building in any sort of prejudice against, you know, people of another color, white, uh, in this so like, case, you know, make telling them all the, the history of oppression the, and, make, you know, white, white, white. I mean, I, I would if I, I feel like that would be tough if I'm telling my children, you know, this has been done to us. This has been done to us. I, I feel like, you know, you have. Do you ever worry about building in prejudice the other way? Uh, I don't. I think because I'm clear, you know, and I'm clear in my own teaching my own education and also clear, you know, when I eventually have these conversations with my kids, that it's not, it's not about like for too long, racism has been discussed and understood as an interpersonal phenomenon. Right. So it is, I'm, I'm not interested in like this white, white people are going to have done this to you. I'm more interested in talking about like a system that is supported and lifted up by whiteness, which is a made up thing in order to justify having certain people, uh, you know, have resources and power and, and opportunities that they don't give to other people, uh, that, you know, 
as as Baldwin calls it, like those those people who like who think of themselves as white or believe themselves to be white. Um, I'm more interested in the sort of systemic and structural analysis and conversation, and I don't I don't I don't think that it would engender. I mean, like it's like anything. Like you can have that conversation in a way that engenders resentment, and you can have that conversation in a way that you know, in the way that it was for me, that was like profoundly liberating and emancipatory because you've been told your entire life that the reason black people live in the conditions they do is somehow their fault. And then when you get information that makes it clear to you, at least this was the case for me, that makes it clear to you that that is not at all the case. It, it is so that paralysis that I was talking about that I experienced as a 13 year old kid on the soccer, you know, with the kid on my soccer team, when you are freed of that, when you are freed of this country's ability to lie to you about who you are again and again and again and again, um, there's something so powerful in that. And that's why, you know, it, these conversations about race, you know, it, I think, you know, there are so many books I've been asked to give like a lot of book recommendations and all kind of stuff um, to, to white people, but also to, to black people, because I was, I was a, I was a black person who didn't know so much of the history that is like central to my understanding of this country now. And when I learned that history for myself, regardless of it, I mean, I'm in a unique position as a, as a teacher and a writer where like the things that I'm learning, I then like put out in a public facing way. But, but I think if you, if you learn this stuff and it's just for you, you know, I talk all the time about this example of one of the guys I worked with in, in the jail and he picked up this book by Richard Rothstein called the color of law. Color Law out, sort of outlined the history of housing segregation in this country. And he picked this up and he was reading it and we had a conversation about it. And he was just like, Clint, like nobody ever told me this. Like I was never taught any of this. And he had such a different framework and such a profoundly different analysis for the community that he was born into that allowed him to like think differently about his own trajectory to prison. That was like, that, that, I think freed him of this feeling that like I was just a bad kid, right? Cause that's what he was told yeah. his whole life. He was like, you're just a bad kid. You just are a bad kid. And that's why you ended up in jail. You ended up in prison. But like when you, somebody gives you the, the analysis and the framework to understand that, like, actually you're not an inherently bad kid. Cause there aren't inherently bad kids. You were a kid who was born into an impossible, unimaginable set of circumstances that no kid should have to be born into in which you, you're, you know, the reason that your mother struggled with addiction and the reason your father, your father was incarcerated are also impossible to disentangle from a larger, like war on drugs, impossible to disentangle from a larger, um, you know, systemic, you know, poverty that existed, impossible to, and it just, it allows for people to say like, it's not just me. And that's not to say it is, uh, it absolves people of personal responsibility. It's not to say that it makes it so that free will doesn't exist or that agency doesn't exist. What it does, it, it helps us contextualize and ground that agency in the circumstances from which it is emerging. And for him, it was like the most liberating thing wow. we had ever read. Clint, wait, when, did you, when did you sort of get educated? You know, you were saying that you yourself as a kid weren't, but was there, how old were you when you decided to pick up books and really start to educate yourself i think in a proactive way probably yeah. after i graduated from college probably 22 21 22 um when i started teaching so i was teaching in a community in prince george's county maryland you know 
majority of kids on free and reduced lunch, every kid in school, black and brown. And, and I've been told my whole, not my whole, but like I've been inundated with this message that like education, it was the civil rights issue of our time. It was how we were going to solve poverty is how we're going to solve all the, like, we just got to give these kids good teachers and good education. And everything's going to be different. Good teachers matter a lot. Good education and schools matter a lot. Um, but it became clear to me that schools were part of a much larger ecosystem of social infrastructure, pieces of social infrastructure that, that weren't being fully taken into account. And we weren't thinking about the way that these, these pieces of the ecosystem interacted with each other. And so like, we can't treat schools as if they were an island without understanding. Like I can't, I can't walk into my classroom and treat it as this sanctuary or this island that is separate from everything else, which is what I at first tried to do as a first year teacher. I was like, we're going to pretend nothing else exists when you're in this classroom. That's the only thing that matters. But like if somebody's parent is locked up or if somebody's afraid that their parents are going to get deported when they get home from school, or if somebody grows up in a community that has no grocery stores, or if somebody is growing up in a community where their uh, parents are struggling with addiction, or if somebody's growing up in a community where the, um, where there's like, you know, uh, a lot of violence and, and, and gang activity. And, you know, I can't separate that from the lived experience. Those lived experiences of that young person are impossible to separate from their experience in school. And so I say all that because I just started thinking about and reading about more of the sort of larger social, socio-political forces and historical realities that shaped what my community, my school community was looking like and what the United States was looking like. Um, and, you know, my students were the sort of catalyst for this. And then I was like, I want to kind of think about this full time. And then I went to grad school mm. uh, and then, uh, and now I'm a doctor thinking about this. Uh, <laughs> not, right. yeah. not, not the helpful kind. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, now are you, you know, are you sick of telling white people what to do, what to read? I mean, you're here. I'm hearing, you know, this now. And I've, you know, again, I, I, I texted a friend who basically said, look, here's an article, you know, research it for yourself. Yeah. Um, is that a, is that an issue? You know, cause I'm hearing it a, a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I don't think about what I'm, doing is is like talking i mean i think people have different dispositions around these things right like and i think what is true is that it is no black person's responsibility Mm -hmm. to teach white people about the history of racism in this country uh my disposition is one i I mean i just am an educator yeah i'm a teacher and so i just i think my disposition whether the person is white or black or latinx or whatever the case may be i mean i'm always thinking about what it means to be an educator um but you know, so, you know, but we all have limited bandwidth with regard to this stuff. But I mean, I think what is true is like, you know, I, whoever's listening to this, my job is not to be your teacher moving forward on, ongoing. Like, I hope maybe it is a catalyst to you hopefully doing some work on your own, right? Like, I mean, the, the thing about all of this is that like, we we live in such an information rich moment where, I mean, if you want to know, you yeah. can know, right? Yeah. You don't even have in like the books. The articles, yeah. the podcasts, the YouTube videos. I mean, there are endless ways for you to learn about the history of this country um, and what it has done to different groups of people. Um, and so, it, you know, 
am I, I think I'm exhausted like every black mm-hmm. person in the country. Um, and I, I think I just want, what I want is not for people. I think that it can be easy for someone to be like, oh man, I really want to help in this moment. You donate to a racial justice organization or you like make a Facebook post or you, you know, whatever the case may be. And those things are helpful and they're important, right? But I, what, is, what I'm more interested in is what does a lifetime commitment to that look like? And what does it look like after the, you know, the protests have stopped? What does it look like after Trump is out of office? What does it look like after um, the pandemic's over? What does it look like just like moving forward in your life? What is it, and how can you institute these changes in ways that are, that reflect your commitments in your own life? So like, so, yeah. so then in a broad sense, then what, what do you, what do you personally, what does Clint hope that that looks like? You know what I mean? Once the protests are over and all of that, like, you know, what do you hope, what, what are you, what are you hopeful for? What do you hope for? I hope that people will interrogate every part of their lives and ask if it is explicitly or implicitly or consciously or subconsciously lifting up or allowing racist systems to persist, right? So like thinking, for example, I think all the time about uh, their New York City had been trying to integrate its schools and the school chancellor came in and he was like, we're going to like make it so that a lot of these poor black and brown kids can get into these top schools because right now they're not, right? Like they don't have access to the best public schools in the city. and the the venom with which white ostensibly liberal parents in these this part of new york pushed back against that the way that they talked about how the quality of the school would be diluted the way they talked about how their kids wouldn't be safe the way and you know these are people who imagine themselves to be you know progressive thoughtful individuals mm. but like what are the ways that you are you know to me that's a very explicit way in which you are like actively preventing a redistribution of resources and opportunities to happen um, in ways that that are not actually reflective of the principles you supposedly espouse, right? So, like, and you know, for example, what does it mean to think about um, you know you want to live in a more equitable, just society, but you also want to maintain exclusionary zoning practices in your neighborhood so that only single-family homes can be built. When what we know is that if only single family homes can be built in the neighborhood, that in and of itself is a, a, a proxy to discriminate against family like black families, and uh, because well, they don't have the same level of wealth, and you know, you if an apartment can't be built or a multi-family um, home can't be built, uh, then you are de facto preventing certain people from moving into your neighborhood, or you know, just just the small daily community-based decisions. Are happening um like who are you hiring for your company who are you interviewing who are you um you know i think all the time about the big this big interview or resume study um that happened uh, a few years ago where they had the exact same resume and they put a white sounding name at the top of one and a black sounding name at the top of other let's say tommy and jamal and they sent them out to uh they sent them out to different potential employers and what they found was that Tommy had a 50% better chance, was 50% more likely to get a callback for an interview than Jamal was, despite the resumes being exactly the same. And so if I were to go to Tommy and say, Tommy, you know, uh, this, we did this experiment and you and Jamal have the exact same resume. 
and you're just because your name sounds like a white person, you are 50% more likely to get a callback for this interview. What do you think about that? Tommy would be like, that's unfair. That's terrible. I don't want to live in a world like that. We have to stop that. And then if you're like, all right, cool. What that means in practice is that like you will be 25% less likely to get a callback for this interview than you were before. Right. Mm-hmm. Then Tommy's going to be like, this is reverse racism. This mm-hmm. is discrimination. Mm-hmm. What do you think, right? So it's a question of like, are you willing to recognize that some opportunities you have exist at the expense of other people's opportunities and resources? And how can we think differently about what a redistribution of opportunities and resources looks like that doesn't feel as if something is being taken away from a person, but instead is being distributed in ways that are actually uh, equitable and consistent with the way that they should have always been? Mm-hmm. And it's hard, right? Yeah. so glad we we have you on you're 31 years old you've done so much already but i i just, i think you're going to do amazing things in this world you're still a young guy and uh those kids three and one are a couple of lucky kids to have to have you as dad mm-hmm. and and the grandparents that they have and i guess the the only question i have and and we can cut this off i could talk to you all day is I don't know what to do with the police situation. I really don't. What's happened is sickening. Is it about accountability? Is it about is it about defunding the police? So I, you know, probably needs more time than, than we have left. But um, what I will say is that uh, the policing as an institution in this country has never existed as an institution that did not terrorize black people. Just like from the the beginnings of the origins of policing in the country are born out of slave patrols in -hmm. the South, right? Like that is, and, and the evolution of what policing became is intrinsically linked and tied to harming, incarcerating, assaulting, brutalizing, terrorizing black people. So I think the conversation has to begin there. And I also think there has to be, we have to disentangle what is a need for police and what is a need for public safety. Because I I think those two things can get lumped together in ways that that aren't actually true, right? I think there are ways to reimagine what society and safety looks like that don't involve the police as the institution that exists today. And so I think the the main thing that people are talking about right now, defund the police, is the it is predicated on this idea that we allow we allot billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars to local police forces that the communities are telling us have consistently brutalized and terrorized and harmed them. And we see it feels like every day right now a new example of someone who was killed at the hands of police who simply shouldn't have been. Part of what needs to happen is that we need to fundamentally reduce the contact that people are having with the police in the first place, right? So like the police, one, are responding to uh, far more things than they have the capacity to or that they should or that they are trained to do, right? Police are not social workers. They are not mental health workers. They are not, uh, they are not trained or good at de-escalating situations, right? Like, I mean, the list kind of goes on and on. And I think that the the premise of 
abolition, the premise of defund the police is not, you know, it can, people can hear that and it sounds like very negative. We're like, oh, take money away from the police or get rid of the police or when it actually is a project predicated on growth, right? And investment. And it's saying, instead of investing these billions of dollars in the police, why are we not investing some of the billions of those dollars into fighting homelessness, into making it so that people, I mean, we see, we saw during the pandemic that like people put like cities across the country took homeless people and like put them in homes or hotels or like, it's not a question of whether we have the capacity to do these things. It's a matter of what is our, our moral and political will to do it. So, you know, homelessness or mental health resources in so many communities where the police are responding to individuals, there's like mental health crises that people, because they don't have access to healthcare, mm-hmm. because they don't have access to hospitals, aren't being able to respond to. People are uh, so much the reason that people get engaged in, in what we call crime is because of a sort of desperation that is born out of not having jobs or if you have a job, having a job that still doesn't pay you a living wage, and then you know you can make a diff- you can make more money doing something else that isn't your twelve dollars an hour uh, at your job. And even if we made it to fifteen dollars an hour, you know people are still would still be living in um, in, in pr- impoverished conditions as the price of everything continues to go up. So I think the the idea of it, I think about it like eating a cake, right? Like you don't. You don't just like throw the whole cake in your mouth. If you're my son, you do, right? You just like throw your face, <laughs> just throw your face in the cake. But most of us, you eat a cake slice by slice. And I think the way that I think about defunding the police, if, if we're thinking about it in the context of that nomenclature, is like how can we sort of like slice by slice by slice remove remove the relevance of police, right? But like if we invest in these other parts of our social infrastructure you like make police increasingly relevant. It, it, you make police, excuse me, increasingly irrelevant in so many different parts of society. The most people have been saying this, but like, if you think about living in the suburbs, like most people just don't, you actually don't see the police very often, right? Like you, what people who live in, uh, in these other communities that are saturated with poverty, they see the police often because the conditions of poverty create desperation and create you know, and it's not and it's not particular to black people or brown people or whoever, like ed- everywhere across the world, the conditions of poverty create desperation. Desperation leads to violence and all sorts of things. If you reduce the sense of desperation, if you give people the things they need to live a full and meaningful life, then you fundamentally reduce the need for policing as the institution that we we understand it. Mm-hmm. So I, I just yeah. think people need to think about what does it mean to like have a fundamental shift in like what we are actually investing in and think different about, about what public safety looks like and, and, and are the, and, and how much of what we imagine the need for the police or so many police or so much money invested in police to be is born out of like actual empirical evidence or, and how much of it is born out of what we have been taught and told our entire lives is what police are there to do, which is actually not what they do for millions and millions of people in this country. Mm. Amazing. Are you uh, are you hopeful? I mean, are you hopeful for your for the future for your kids? You know, I mean, are you where do you where do you stand yeah. right now in this time? You know, just as far as hope goes. Uh, I would say I'm actually I'm I find myself really heartened by everything that's going on right now. Um, yeah, I think uh, we are in a. I I could have never. 
I wouldn't have imagined sort of five, six, seven years ago in the sort of early stages and early years of Black Lives Matter that, you know, every single company in the country would be putting out statements of solidarity, you know, and we can have a conversation about like the impulses of, uh, you know, capitalism and like mm-hmm. how, how genuine these things are. But but the fact that there is a cultural uh, and a societal demand for them to do it, what regardless of what their intentions are, I think says something about this moment that we're in. Uh, and that the the groups of people out in the streets have been so multiracial and so sustained um, has really been remarkable to watch. And I, I, we're in a, I think we are in a fundamentally different moment um, and an inflection point in this country that is, you know, my 14-year-old cousin, uh, he told me that something and he was just like, man, Clint, we're living through a social studies chapter right now. Mm. And I was mm. like, that's it. I mean, that's, that's it. That's so, it's so true. You know, this yeah. is a moment for, for all sorts of reasons, right? This presidency, this pandemic, this, these protests, you know, the, the confluence of all of these things together have created a, a fire in this country um, that, you know, metaphorical and, and literal mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that is, I think, demanding, something different and the question is like how long can we sustain the conversation and and again is it like a lifetime commitment that people are willing to make so i feel i feel hopeful about where we are um and i also know you know i always tell people that i come from a tradition and a lineage of people who who were enslaved and you know slavery existed for 250 years in this country and for 250 years there were people who were fighting against slavery and very few of them ever got to see the end of slavery. Very few of them ever got to see emancipation. But that doesn't mean that over the course of generation after generation after generation after generation, that those people weren't working toward and making it possible for other people to get closer to emancipation, to get closer mm-hmm. to the abolition of slavery, right? I think about it like a, this big concrete wall, and you just have people chipping away at the wall, chipping away at the wall, and nobody knows where the other side of the wall is, right? Like it could be uh, two inches more, it could be, you know, uh, 200 yards more, right? Like, mm-hmm. and you're just chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And every generation is chipping away the best they can so that the next generation has less to chip away at. And at some point, whether it be, you know, me or my son or his family, kids, or his kids, kids, at some point, something opens up in history that allows for moments like what we see now to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, then, and now there's more hammers to and keep chipping hammer. away at that right. wall, you know. Which exactly. Is- and I think, uh, you know, you got more hammers and more people and more people who see the wall. Yeah. And who see yeah. that the wall needs to be chipped, right? Because yeah. for a long time, you just had people walking around pretending that this wall wasn't there. Yeah. And if anything, and, and you know, some people who were actively trying to build the wall back while other people chipped it away. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think we're in a different moment. I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, but I also know it's a, it's the long game. Right? It is a long game. I don't yeah. fight for, I don't do any of this work because I, I expect to see the benefits of it in my lifetime. I do it because I know that somebody at some point will see the benefits of it in their lifetime. Yeah. Um, and right. I think when you step away from needing to see the fruits of your labor immediately in the way that our sort of society has, has become accustomed to wanting, um, and you sort of free yourself of that, need and you say like this is much bigger than me mm-hmm. um i think it makes the work it gives you a different sense of perspective about 
your own position in in the sort of work that we're all yeah and i think i think sort of as a white person as well with privilege a person who has white privilege i i, I do say i do think that it, it, there was a moment of, of 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 being overwhelmed that i have to do something really really big to make an impact you know i think that's that's why the question is, what can I do? What can I do? There's this idea that it has to be big and, and just big and monumental. But then I sort of internalized and I, I, I sat quiet. And really, it was just to be a part of the solution for me was awareness and then education to begin with. Yeah. Every, there, are, there are a lot of lanes to occupy and you can occupy many at one time. But I, I just didn't feel i finally felt that i didn't have to occupy all lanes let me start with one and and let's see where that leads you know you got to walk to sprint so that that's that's sort of how i you know it made it easier for me to sort of not have to ask the question of what can i do what can i do i said well let me figure that out and for me it was just about reading i mean it's very simple reading and watching and listening you know and i think that that's that's so important. I do. It is also important that like, I think investing resources is deeply important as well, right? Like, so reading and awareness and like the conversations we have with each other, the conversations you have with your family and your friends in ways that exist, you know, because the nature of that conversation is, is different if I'm in the room, right? Mm-hmm. Than, than if you're in the room by yourself with a group of white people. But it also, you know, also, I think there is something to be said about people you know, putting money where their mouth is and, and that can look a lot of different ways. And there are a lot of different organizations and, and, you know, so I'd say that, and also just, I think certain ideas can be really scary to people because they're unfamiliar. And so when somebody hears defund the police or when somebody hears abolish the police, if your first instinct is to dismiss it, or your first instinct is to say, that's not realistic or your first, rather than to to study and say, like, let me actually ask what this thing is. Let me try to understand the like larger, the people who've been working and thinking about this thing for a long time. So again, there's like so much research out there to help people understand these things. And so just because you are, someone might be sort of put off by the, the language or the nomenclature is, uh, is not necessarily excuse. And, and you, you might read it and do all the research and still not agree with it. But I think that's different than saying, this this doesn't make any sense. Why are these? This right. is like not even allowing it as a starting point, mm-hmm. right? Well, I know this. It's six oh two in the east, and you have a three year old and a one year old. So that means it's probably dinner time may have come and gone. It's got to be bath time <laughs> pretty damn soon. So thank your wife for us. But I um, I, I don't want to I don't want to finish this up without bringing up the book. Your book that you that's I think coming out in twenty twenty one, right? Yes, yeah. How, how the word yeah. is passed. Let's talk about that just for a second because I I'm interested in. And yeah, I, so the yeah. so um, I'll have to I've I've used much of my marriage capital on this. Uh, <laughs> yes, we. I know. I, I, I get to, it. I, I have get to it. Rub my rub my wife's feet after this. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I so I have a book coming out uh, next year called How the Word Is Passed. Um, and it is about different historical sites across the country and how they reckon with or fail to reckon with their relationship to the history of slavery. And so I go to different places across the country and think about to what extent are they being honest about their relationship to this, this history. And so, for example, a place I go is uh, Angola prison, 
And Angola is a prison that uh, in southern Louisiana is the largest maximum security prison in the country. And it is uh, on top of former uh, on top of a former plantation. Uh, and, you know, 70 to 80 percent of the people in there are, are black. And I think about if we were to go to Germany and you had uh, the largest maximum security prison in Germany on top of a former concentration camp in which 70 to 80 percent of its occupants were Jewish. Mm. It would be a global emblem of anti-Semitism. It would be a moral affront. It would be so repugnant to all of our our ethical and moral sensibilities. People would be protesting outside of it every day, and they should. They should be because it would be unacceptable. And yet, in the U.S., we have the largest maximum security prison in the country on top of a former plantation in which seventy to eighty percent of the people in there are black men. And I'm thinking a lot about what are the ways that white supremacy both enacts violence against Black people, but also numbs society to violences that should otherwise be unacceptable. Like it should be unacceptable for that prison to exist on that land. Mm. Much less, you know, when you go there and you see black men literally like with garden hose picking cotton and vegetables and in the in the fields of this vast eighteen thousand acre land. Um, and it exists today. And why? Why? What? What in us, what in the DNA of this country allows that to continue to exist? So um, so that comes out next spring. Um, pre-order link should be available soon. Yeah, we'll uh, include all we'll include all that, man. That that for sure. That's I can't wait to I can't wait to read that. Absolutely. Thank you. Hey, Clint, thank you so much for thank you uh, so much. Taking the time and yeah. And uh give your wife a kiss for me. I know how uh I know that she she's probably gonna get You're gonna get that look. You're gonna get that look. I've got that look. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Uh, that's good. Well uh, um thank you very much, Clint. I again really appreciate it. I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much. Have Thanks, Clint. All, All right. right, you too. Yep. yep.